you know, in, in thinking about this podcast and in reflecting on my career generally, what I've realized is that we have done better and better For sure. at reforestation. Uh, at the same time, we have tended to do a much less robust job of examining our assumptions and adjusting our assumptions to reflect learning. Hey folks, what's happening? Welcome to Your Forest. My name is Matthew Kristoff, and on this podcast, we talk about the environment and the science of sustainability. Today's episode was with Milo Mihalovic, someone I've had on, I think, three or four times now, someone whose opinion I very much respect and look forward to talking to him every time because he's just taken the time to really understand the issues that we have in land management today and and where they're coming from and and, and the you know, the human causes of them and the human constraints on them and just, you know, how do we get out of this issue, this problem and, and come out of it on top in, in a better place, right? So um, he came on today because we're always communicating. He sends me emails telling me where I've screwed up on episodes or where I've done well, which I appreciate, Milo, to keep on doing it because it keeps me honest and it keeps me knowing when I uh, need to readdress something, which is what today's episode is. Today's episode... Um, we started off the first 10 minutes was talking about uh, the bison episode I did, which is really good. And then the rest of it is all about silviculture. And he wanted to come in and talk about the history of silviculture in Alberta, where it started, where it's been. And then we spent the last 45 minutes or so talking about the future, right? So the importance of understanding the history was so that we understand the giant leaps that we've made and the giant leaps still yet to come. Right, so it's easy to look at at something and say, "Oh, well, this doesn't include this value, or this this isn't well managed because of this, that, and the other thing." But without understanding it in context, um, what it was before, we can't really appreciate what's been done. So uh, we spent a lot of time talking about the history of silviculture, the history of growing back the forest, and where we went wrong with you know our our solely timber approach or trees approach, just thinking about the trees and not other values. And by the end of this conversation, we're talking about managing for co-values. So instead of constraining forest management by, you know, water values or recreation values or indigenous values or biodiversity values, we're actually talking about managing all these things together at once at the same time. And it, it's an it's a really cool idea. And I think it's it's the it's the ultimate in land management, right? It's it's the idea of managing the whole thing holistically, comprehensively, seeing it all at the same time rather than managing each piece individually and then managing conflicts, you know, as they arise. Now we can do it all at once. And that's kind of where we ended up going. And, and talking about stakeholder involvement in forest management and, and, and just having it be the whole forest approach instead of just these you know, 
us worrying about or every every stakeholder worrying about their stake and and, and not the others right so it's it's a cool idea and i loved it and it, and i think the the preamble the you know the hour of milo talking about the history was important to understand because it just gives us that context and appreciation for how far we've come and then it also it provides some examples of of how difficult what we want to do next is going to be but how important and crucial it is and how inevitable it is really so, uh, yeah, thanks Milo for coming on to talk about this. Cause it was just, yeah, it was, it was perfect. I think we provided some concrete or you provided some concrete examples of how we can accomplish this next step in forestry and in land management and, um, how to take those first steps and how to make it happen. Right. I think, I think we're primed and ready for this new way of doing things. And I think you provided a good opportunity for that. So hopefully anyone listening can can take up this idea and and, and move it in the right direction because the, I think the time is now. <laughs> it's an exciting thing. So uh, if for whatever reason you find yourself not all that engaged or interested in the very specific history of silviculture in Alberta and how we got where we are today, um, you can jump ahead to 56 minutes and 30 seconds and you will be transported immediately into our conversation about the future and what's coming next it's important to me that you definitely hear that portion because that is to me what is the the next stage and 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 really exciting so this podcast is supported by west fraser without them i would not be able to do this so thank you west fraser for your support it is also supported by greenlink forestry who's been with me since the beginning and again could not do this without their support and the final sponsor is damaged timber they are selling damaged timber that you can put in your kitchen go to damagedtimber.com and put in your forest tenant checkout for 10 percent off now without any further messing around here we go with milo I figured we'd start with uh, just describing why you're here, <laughs> which is the uh, the semi-regular email I get from you saying, yeah, this I listened to this episode. It was good. Or I listened to this episode, and I don't know what you were thinking. <laughs> so I – but I – the first one, before we get into the real reason we're here, I, I thought which may have, may actually be a more important point to make was the the comment you had about episode 83 – Forgotten Icons, the mm-hmm. one with uh, Jason Edwards, I believe, yep. about the bison, right? Yep. And the bison call and all that kind of thing. And yeah, so tell me, yeah, explain to me what we misrepresented there and okay, what I, actually happened. I, I I think the 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 part I take exception to with episode 83 mm-hmm. is that the, uh, the destruction of the bison on the Great Plains was not primarily a commercial enterprise. It was primarily a military exercise. And what happened was that the, the United States, at the end of the Civil War, uh, from the, uh, the, the western boundary of the Mississippi River to the Atlantic Ocean, and from the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Ocean, was settled. Mm-hmm. But in between those two bands of settled country were the Great Plains. And the Great Plains were dominated by a number of pretty heavy-duty indigenous people. Mm -hmm. The Comanche, who arguably were the best-like cavalry the world has ever seen. 
The Sioux, who were undoubtedly the most warlike of the indigenous peoples uh, in the Americas, and the Cheyenne, who were kind of friends with both. Right. So you had this this uh, very warlike, very adapted uh, group of indigenous people who essentially had an alternate empire. Mm. Uh, and weren't prepared to surrender that empire to the United States. But the United States needed to link the East and the West, or like Canada would have if we hadn't settled the prairies, they would have fallen apart and would have been separate countries. Mm -hmm. So uh, they set out to do that, and they spoke with two tongues. President Grant, who was the former commander-in-chief of the Union armies during the Civil War, Uh, was president, and he said, I'm going to have a peace policy with indigenous people. And then he sent William Tecumseh Sherman, who was his best army commander mm-hmm. during the Civil War, to be the military commander of the Department of Missouri, which was the Great Plains. Okay. Now, Grant and Sherman, between them, are the men who indu- invented industrial war. Mm-hmm. Prior to those guys, war was largely set-piece battles, and the whole idea was you take your army, and you meet with your opponent's army, and you fight to a finish, and whoever wins the battle won, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What Grant and Sherman did is a industrialized war. So they said war is not about winning battles. War is about defeating the enemy in detail. And the way you defeat the enemy in detail is you break up his supply lines, you defeat him in battle, and you destroy his access to materiel, which means that he can't fight anymore. Right. So effectively, they invented total war. Right. And Grant sent the guy who perfected that. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard of Sherman's march to the sea, but Sherman essentially attacked Georgia and cut a swath 70 miles wide across Georgia, which essentially gutted the ability of the Confederacy to produce the material they needed to fight war and also broke up their ability to send supplies from states further south to battle in Virginia. Mm. That's how they won the Civil War. They essentially made it so the Confederates couldn't fight. And Sherman went west and saw the way to defeat the indigenous people is exactly the same way. And his area commanders, guys like the infamous George S. or George A. Custer and George S. Crook and Ranald M. McDonald all were uh, well known and highly successful Civil War commanders. Mm-hmm. And what they did is they recognized that if we go out and we try and defeat these guys in battle, we'll never do it. Because these indigenous people were masters of guerrilla warfare. They were masters of hit-and-run warfare. They carried their commissary on their backs, Mm -hmm. and you could never find them. The little bighorn or greasy grass, if you're speaking Sioux, Mm -hmm. was the great exception. Mm. It was a set-piece battle which the indigenous people won, but it was the exception. And so the way to defeat these people was to make it so they couldn't survive on the land. So the official policy was you don't go into these territories and shoot buffalo. 
But the regional commanders, the buffalo hunters would show up and the regional commanders would say, well, you're not supposed to go in there. And so the buffalo hunters would go in there and the regional commanders wouldn't go in and kick them out. They'd just say, you shouldn't be in there. Right. And you need to recognize that the best Indian fighters on the plains in those days weren't the, wasn't the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. It was the civilians. The same year, 1876, when Custer was defeated in detail, mm-hmm. there were about 200 prospectors working Montana, and the Sioux didn't touch them. Because those prospectors went out in a group. They knew how to fight Indians. They fought Indians the same way Indians fought white guys. They carried repeating rifles. Mm. And the indigenous people didn't touch them. They went after the cavalry. But the way that the long-term outcome was decided was once you take away the commissary, the Sioux can't fight anymore. They've got to go on the reservation and take flour and beef or they starve. Yeah. Well, it makes sense when you look at the, even like, like the way that was done, right? Is I, even things they mentioned, uh, Jason mentioned, right? Was that they were just shooting bison from trains going by and just. That was trivial. That yeah. was trivial. What was the big kill was the professional hide hunters. Right. And there were hide hunters. There was one guy, his name was Nixon, who was famous for having shot 150 bison in one day. Yeah. Uh, another very famous hide hunter was Billy Dixon, who was famed mostly for his great skill with a rifle, mm-hmm. who's known to have shot and hit an Indian on a horse at 1,500 yards. Jesus, back then, yeah. With open sights, yeah. or with iron sights. So, you know, th- these guys were pros, and there were lots of them, mm-hmm. and they would haul in thousands of hides each. And then the hides would be shipped east and tanned and made into belting Mm -hmm. to run machines in the industrial heartland of the United States. But it wasn't that that the hides were special. It was just that was a way to enable the hunt. Right. And that that was something big that I missed for sure because I was was confused during that whole podcast being like, why would they just go out and shoot? 500 and only take 50 hides or whatever, right? No, they took the hides. And, and, and it was, it was interesting to, but like when you pointed that out, I was like, oh, right, that totally makes sense. That was the time when they're, they, you there's, know what I mean? There's a, a couple of really good books yeah. that I'd recommend. Mm-hmm. The, the one I'd recommend the most is The Lance and the Shield by okay. Robert M. Utley. Okay. It's a biography of Sitting Bull. And another one that I would recommend very highly, and I can't remember the name of the author, is uh, the biography of Crazy Horse. Right. Okay. And what those authors do, these are fairly recent histories. Otley dates back to the 1980s. The Crazy Horse book dates back to about uh, 2005. But they they have a revisionist view of history, and they put forward that the uh, the kill of the bison was a military exercise mm. because you couldn't really put settlers on the plains until you depopulated it. Yeah, because well, that makes sense. The, I mean, those people were fierce. I mean, you mm-hmm. you didn't want to get caught by the Sioux or the Comanche, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, they they were they were good fighters, and candidly, they were very well equipped. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the, there was an archaeological study of the Little Bighorn battlefield, mm-hmm. and from that study, it's estimated that the uh, the Sioux had several hundred repeating rifles. Mm. 
you know, so they uh, they understood mm-hmm. uh, the tools appropriate to what they did. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's important uh, to note for sure because yeah. it's important because like the whole for me to not include that or to not know that. I mean, I'm not going to blame myself, but I will say that it's it's important to note these things because otherwise you just have this whitewashing of history where you're missing half the information. And the most important thing is that yeah, this is how you know the Native Americans, the indigenous yep. folks were were defeated. It was just yeah, oh, it was brutal. Yeah, it was absolute brutal. I mean, yeah. it was essentially uh, genocidal warfare with ethnic cleansing. Yeah, to use the modern description. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's horrific. But it's yeah. yeah. But I appreciate you pointing that out because it's obviously a, a glaring hole in that episode, and yeah, it needs to be pointed out for sure. Yeah. So no, I appreciate that. So thank you. You're welcome. That was good. And I'll, yeah, I'll have to look back at those. I know you mentioned the books in the email. I'll have to look, yeah. go back and read those just to get more of an education would, on it. I would really recommend it. Yeah, yeah. I will, for sure. Yeah. So, and then, so the reason we're here, which is the reason um, that this podcast is about, right? About forest management and improving it and making it better, including better values and all this kind of stuff. Um, you had brought up the episode 69, Grind and Pound, the talking with uh, – uh, Oh, what was his name now? Uh, Wilson Schillis. That's right. I believe. Uh, he's a tree planter. I was basically just asking him what it was like to be a tree planter. And, and, and we talked about little things. And I made a comment. And you can go ahead from here. What, what, what did I say? What did I misrepresent? You, 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 you left me with the implication that you thought regeneration standards had really come into place in the 1990s. Right. And I uh, I sent you an email <laughs> <laughs> saying, hey, Matt, that isn't how it was. Yeah. And uh, you said, well, then tell us how it was. Yeah. So uh, I've been doing a lot of reflecting since that conversation. Mm-hmm. And a big part of my reflection has been that I realized that I've really spanned uh, – the evolution of the managed forest in Alberta. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when I was very young, my father was involved in working in the woods, mm-hmm. uh, diameter limit cutting spruce. Right. And, uh, so I, cutting I, the bigger I, trees and leaving the smaller ones. Yeah. Know, diameter limit meant that essentially you cut all trees of a breast height diameter above a certain size. And generally it meant 16 inches at breast height and anything smaller was left behind. Mm-hmm. And, uh, also in those days, spruce was the preferred species. Pine was viewed as a bit of a weed. Mm-hmm. I remember, uh, what a big deal it was when he got an order for some mine props made out of pine. Mm-hmm. And it was like, wow, we got to learn to deal with pine. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, uh, that's kind of where I started. When, uh, when, when, just to date you a little bit, <laughs> when, when was this? That would have been the late 1950s. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and in parallel with that, uh, a whole new paradigm of forest management was starting to evolve. And what was happening there was it started in Hinton with uh, a company called St. Regis who obtained an agreement from the government of Alberta that essentially allocated them a land base. And in return for them being allocated the land base, which meant they were the only people who could cut trees on that land, mm-hmm. they committed to reforesting after harvest and they committed to essentially managing the forest on uh, a sustained yield basis which meant that they would always have enough trees to support their facility and they would go on like uh, the 200 year planning horizon and all those things we talk about you're only cutting the the growth yeah yeah you cut the growth with a bit of a margin for error yeah 
Right. And, <laughs> yeah. Important. Very important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was really novel. That was incredibly new when that, uh, came to be. And they, uh, they started constructing the mill in 1955. Okay. Yep. And they spun the mill up in early 1957. Okay, so, uh, you know, I, I don't remember that well, but I do remember, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I've, I've kind of ridden with it from there. Mm-hmm. So, um, I decided on a career in forestry, uh, mostly because I had an uncle who was a forest ranger. And I, I really liked what I saw him doing. The fact that he got to be out in the woods every day and get paid for it and somebody bought his gas. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good deal. Yeah. So I decided to, to go into forestry and he talked me into, uh, the professional stream rather than the technical stream, right. even though he was in the technical stream. Mm-hmm. So by the uh, early 1970s, I was looking at forestry as a profession and you know, Hinton had proven a success, so there were more forest management agreements being negotiated, a couple in Grand Prairie, one with a company called North Canadian Forest Industries, which became Canfor, right. and the other with Procter & Gamble, uh, who were later bought out by Weyerhaeuser. So those were sort of the initial forest management agreements in the province. Uh, they were doing really interesting stuff. Um and there was a recognition that this model worked. Mm-hmm. So uh, by the early 1960s, uh, the Provincial Forest Management Agency, Alberta Forest Service, who was part of the Department of Lands and Forests, uh, set out to implement sustained yield forestry across the entire forest land base. Okay. So there were a number of pieces to that. The first piece was better forest inventory. The first forest inventory in Alberta was done in the 50s, and it was very, very coarse. Yeah. It was strictly a photo inventory, mm-hmm. and it was done with World War II airplanes and pretty crude cameras. Yeah. Uh, so they moved to what they called a phase two inventory, which involved a lot of ground truthing, get a handle on what the growing stock is, mm-hmm. and then do that sustained yield calculation. Mm-hmm. And the sustained yield calculation generally assumed uh, a 100-year or 120-year, 80 to 120-year interval, depending on species, mm-hmm. uh, geographic location, and the type of site you were on. Yeah. And you calculate how much grows, mm-hmm. and then you say, okay, what we'll do is we'll cut the growth. Mm-hmm. Again, less that margin for loss to fire and, you know, land-based erosion and, you know, all these other mm-hmm. factors that diminish the forest over time. Yeah. And what they did is they did those allocations uh, based on volume. So they would have a forest management unit identified mm-hmm. uh, geographically, and within that management unit, there would be a certain level of harvest that could be sustained, and then they would allocate that harvest to a number of different operators, but it was a volume allocation. And Alberta Forest Service told people where to cut. So okay. they'd say, okay, you're going over here right. and cutting in this area. Mm-hmm. And before the cut happened, we would do a detailed forest inventory, so a, a cruise where we did a 1% sample and we got a much better handle on the volume so we could actually plan up the harvest. Gotcha. And, you know, at that time, we were uh, still counting largely on natural regeneration as the primary 
uh, reforestation practice. And this is when? This is what round? This would be seven. like it, it came in in 1966. Yeah. And I first got involved with it in 1972. Okay. And uh, so what we would do is we'd say, you know, natural seeding is going to take care of most of these, but we'll supplemental seed some. Yeah. And so what we would do is we would lay out those rectangular openings. Right. And if you look at the rectangular openings on an air photo or an old map, you'll see that they tend to be long on the north-south axis and narrow on the east-west axis. And what that was is so that the prevailing winds would blow seeds out of the uncut stand into the cutover area and seed it. And yeah. reforest it. So of natural seeding just by the design of the cup block. Yeah. That's right. And of course, putting this incredibly, um, um, anthropogenic footprint on the landscape. Oh, your checkerboard's not normal in nature. <laughs> <laughs> Only if you're a checker. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, or a chess piece. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, but you know, in, in parallel with that, uh, we were pretty confident that we were, we had made a, an order of magnitude step away from diameter limit cutting. Right. We dismissed diameter limit cutting as high grading because we said all those spruce trees are the same age and we're just cutting down the best ones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're doing so much better now. We're clear cutting. That imitates fire and then we're reforesting right. and so it'll be like nature. Yeah. And, you know, in, in thinking about this podcast and in reflecting on my career generally, what I've realized is that we have done better and better. For sure. At reforestation. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, we have tended to do a much less robust job of examining our assumptions and adjusting our assumptions to reflect learning. Right. So, you know, just as an example, at diameter limit cutting, I was out last week walking through some diameter limit harvested stands that were diameter limited, limit harvested in the late 1960s. And they're now supporting spruce that are like 24 to 30 inches on the butt. Yeah. And those were the runts that were left behind. And what it was is they weren't runts. They were younger. We didn't understand that those spruce stands were, in fact, moving toward being an all-age forest. Right. And where that came from is that at the time we were making all these assumptions, the dominant theory of ecological community development was succession. Yeah. guy called Odom was okay. the god of e- of ecology, plant ecology, mm-hmm. and he believed in deterministic succession. Okay. That if you have a disturbance, this is the plant community that will establish through time and through the influence of the environment and factors in the environment, it will evolve to this kind of plant community and then to this and then to this and then to this. And ultimately, it will reach a climax, which is a stable, steady state system mm-hmm. that supports itself until there's another major disturbance. Sure. What that did is it completely ignored stochasticity. It completely ignored randomness. It completely ignored differences in the starting condition. 
different levels of disturbance. Yeah, yeah. all of that, Is all it, of that. So do you think he, he almost assumed that it was like disturbance was a blank slate kind of thing? Well, we we assumed that harvesting equaled fire and right. that we would get back and we we aged the bigger trees when we did those inventories. We'd increment bore them at breast height and we'd add 15 years and we'd say, by golly, they're 120 years old. So that means if we plant trees on this site in 120 years, this is what will be back here. Right. And uh, scary set of assumptions, but not just the forestry assumptions. It was the the context we were operating sure, in, sure. we all thought that way. Well, yeah, the, the ecologists, the, that was the prevailing science of the day. Yeah. This is how forests you know, succeed, and, yeah. And we were wearing blinkers 30 yeah. centimeters long, so we didn't look over to anthropology <laughs> right. and hear Hank Lewis talking about, hey, indigenous people made the forest the way it is through frequent burning. Yeah. <laughs> we tended to look past low-intensity fire because that made it really complicated. <laughs> That's so, too hard. We'll just ignore that. <laughs> well, and, and we didn't we didn't think low intensity fire was that important, or probably probably didn't think it was that prevalent because it hadn't really been on the landscape for sixty seven years at that well, point. Okay, let's go back a step. The first thing we did when we got here mm-hmm. is we protected the forest from fire. Exactly, it has and yeah. and the fires we were most successful at protecting against were low intensity fires. Yeah. So we went well low intensity fire it doesn't matter it's the big catastrophic fires where in reality we'd already made the most profound change in the forest that we have likely made right which is uh the removal of low intensity fire yeah okay so you know here we are going along and making these assumptions and we go out and look and what we would do is three to eight years after harvest we'd go out and we'd put in plots And when we first started, and this is where we come to regeneration standards, the first regeneration standard was based on the idea that we wanted 400 trees per acre, which translates to 1,000 trees per hectare. Mm -hmm. And of that 400 trees per hectare, we wanted 300 of them at least to be conifers. So what we would do is we would go out and we would put in mill acre plots, one one thousandth of an acre plot. Okay. And I can't remember the radius. That's too long ago. <laughs> but w- what we would do is we would want 40%. I think it's 1.78. No, that's mill hectare. Oh, sorry, you're saying, oh, yeah, 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 gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was a little weenie plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we would burrow down into the vegetation on this plot. And like your dad said on your podcast with him, right. we would find either three one-year-old or two two-year-old or one three-year-old seedling. And we'd go stocked. Yeah. And we'd check it off on our tally sheet and we'd thump off to the next plot. And in a typical day, we'd do a couple of blocks. Uh, you know, so we're going fast and we get back to the office and say, by golly, you know, most of those blocks out there, we had between 42 and 57% stocking. So they're all good. They're on their way. Yeah. And what happened was we started going back and looking at those data. And one of the things we recognized was that that stocking tended to be on the upwind side of the block. So the seed wasn't blowing across the block quite the way we thought it was. And we thought, well, we got to get more active about this. So we started scarifying. And what scarification was, was removing competing vegetation, removing duff so that we had a duff 
which is basically organic decomp- decomposed matter on the forest floor, interface of the duff with the mineral soil that is the, the sort of the base forest floor. And we wanted to put seeds at that interface. So right. we would scarify and we used a number of hellacious implements. <laughs> Uh, and <laughs> frequently overdid the scarification because we didn't understand. Was ripping the hell out of the. Yeah, yeah we didn't of, understand yeah. the uh, very, very fragile nature of forest soils ah. and how shallow they are. Right. So you know we uh, we used some big plows and we used blades with teeth on them and we used rippers pulled behind cats, and then what we would do is we would go out. And we would seed. And, you know, I, I, I came in to forestry and into reforestation right at the peak of that era. Okay. Okay. So the idea was that, uh, you know, we make the site receptive and then we put in propagules and it will take care of itself. And, you know, I, I remember in the spring of 1978, I aerial seeded or Managed the project that Ariel seeded eight thousand acres of aerial seeding. Oh, jeez, that's a lot of land, <laughs> that's Matthew. A bunch of, yeah. It's a lot of land, <laughs> and um, I I left silviculture at that point for a while. I was working for the Alberta Forest Service. I went into land reclamation for a few years, mm. and I came back into silviculture. Uh, in head office here in Edmonton as a coordinator. So I got back into reforestation at kind of a level above where I had previously operated. Sure. And we were going, hmm, you know, that seeding, that, that really wasn't working out. So we started planting trees. And we were planting very small trees. And the folks who were growing the trees weren't horticulturists for the most part. They were foresters. And the idea was to produce lots of trees with a relatively small greenhouse footprint. Mm. And I have vivid memories of going out with boxes of seedlings and you'd take out this little wallet that had six seedlings in it, open the wallet, take out a seedling, plant it, and the seedling would fall over because its buddies weren't around to hold it up anymore. Yeah. And we were growing trees that weren't adequately lignified, that didn't have enough um, diameter for their height, and as a result, they would collapse. Mm. And, you know, so we we were trying to do better. That's providing some interesting insight for me. For I'm currently reading uh, Suzanne Sumard's new book, yep. the Mother Tree one, and she's talking about her experience back when she was doing similar work. To, she was planting, or she yep. was a, she was a supervisor at some point, and it would have been around the same time, probably yep. you know early '80s or late '70s or something like that. And she was talking about how there was so much. Um, there, there's so much death among the planted seedlings, right? And that's and, th- and that's probably exactly the issue, right? That's that's exactly. It's not where the seedlings we're seeing today that are you know what I mean are very well understood. We're, we're, and taken we're going care there. Of, yeah, we're anyways, going there. That makes sense. Anyways, it's just okay. a side so, a side note. <laughs> so we're we're learning that our seeding technique didn't work. So we overlay planting on the mechanical site preparation. At the same time, the regeneration process evolved. 
when we started out, we did a thing called a sequential survey, which is basically you'd look at the block, you'd stand at a corner of the block, and you'd look and see if there were differences, and you'd lay out a line or a path of travel through this block, not really a line by geometric terms, but a path through this block to make sure you put plots in each of these different conditions. And this line survey, which was called a sequential survey, uh, was written into all the forest management agreements. They would get 40% stocking or the block would fail. Okay. And we decided that the sequential survey wasn't telling us enough. And that we had missed this issue with block edges because of the sequential survey. So we kept the 40% stocking. We kept the millacre plot, but we went to a grid of 100 millacre plots. Mm. And the grid had to cover the entire block, and it had to be evenly spaced. And there was a, mm-hmm. of course— Trying to be random. We're, we're, yeah. talking, we're talking government, so there was a strict protocol. And the way we randomized it is that we randomized the start point. Well, what that did is it gave us zero degrees of freedom, right? Because one random point minus one. So it wasn't a statistical assessment. Sure. It was, but it was a grid and it told us things. And I hate to say it, but my colleagues in industry at the time were extremely angry (laughs) about having to do the grid because it substantially increased the cost of doing a reforestation assessment Mm -hmm. and... And I'm not saying there was bias, but what I'm saying is with a more representative sampling, you're much more likely to pick up failure. Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. So all of a sudden, our reforestation success wasn't quite so good. Mm -hmm. But we were still hitting the 40% most of the time, Mm -hmm. and we were feeling good about it. And about the time I left the forest industry to go do a, a hiatus in the world of chemical herbicides, my boss... A guy named Steve Ferdinand was saying, you know, where are all the successful plantations? When I go to the bush, I fly by all these old cut blocks and they're mostly grass or they're mostly aspen or they're aspen and grass. And I don't see the spruce. Right. And he was asking the question. There were some guys in industry asking the question. Some of the field guys were asking the question. So it was kind of emerging. Mm-hmm. And we're let, like we're 10 years in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in terms of it's like a farmer planting barley and going out two weeks later and saying, hmm, I'm not seeing barley yeah, seedlings. I'm not sure, yeah. You know, the time scale's about the same. Sure. So I, I, I don't really fault that. We didn't pick it up for 10 years. 10 years is about the right interval to be picking that up. Mm. So there was a big assessment done and a recognition that, holy smoke, uh, a lot of these areas that we planted, they're forests, but they're certainly not the composition we planned, nor are the conifers in them on the trajectory we used to write the detailed forest management plan. You know, those aren't going to be... 24-inch diameter spruce trees Mm -hmm. at age 120, and they aren't going to be the dominant trees in the stand at age 120. Yeah, and to put that in the context, that means that your your plan doesn't accurately represent what's on the ground. Yeah. Well, to put that in further context, what it means is that by not meeting that expectation, we are, in fact, eroding the forest. Yeah, you're depleting the – yeah, you're cutting faster than you can grow back, yeah. That's right. So there was this recognition, and – who got the blame? 
I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> Calamagrostis and aspen. Oh, right. It's right, like right. the competition is causing this problem. Right. And what we're going to do is we're going to put in a different regeneration standard. So the standard went metric, 1.78 meter radius, mill hectare plot, mm. right? And now we want 800 to 1,000 stems per hectare instead of 400 stems per acre. Mm. So the stocking level went up to 80%, and there was a performance requirement. The trees had to be a certain height. Mm -hmm. And, oh, by the way, folks, in five years, we're putting in another level of standard, and that standard will be uh, assessed in a survey between age 8 and 11 post-harvest. And in that survey, the trees will have to be this height, and that height varied by ecoregion and by ecosite and by species. And, oh, by the way, there's going to be something called a free-to-grow cylinder. That that tree, if you're counting that tree as stocked and in your growing stock, there can't be competition within 1.78 meters radius of that tree. Mm -hmm. okay. this, is, this is a conifer. Yep. Yeah. 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 Well, aspen too. Oh. Yeah. So it was. Yeah. So it was, like, oh my word. It's an interesting competition view of the forest. Yeah. 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 It was pretty simplistic. Sure. But still and, light years above what we were doing previously, yeah, right? Yeah, so, it's, yeah. <laughs> so all of this was happening in about 1987 through about 1990. Okay. And in the meantime, I had, I was still in the world of chemical herbicides, but I was now the senior development forester for the company I worked for. So I covered all of Canada and Alaska dealing with forestry and industrial rights of way. And, uh, I felt like I was Credence Clearwater Revival, <laughs> living on airplanes, seeing North America on an expense account, you know, pretty crazy lifestyle, but also an incredible learning opportunity. For sure. And I got to other jurisdictions and I looked around and I went, holy smoke, <laughs> we're in trouble in Alberta. Oh, really? These other guys are growing conifer like gangbusters and we're out there you know, counting 80% stocking of spindly, spindly little guys that are trying to compete with all this crap. And you got to recognize that my first five years when I worked in the field as a field-level silviculturist, I operated in Slave Lake, okay? And I spent most of my time north of the lake. Mm -hmm. So I dealt with Calamagrostis on a daily basis, mm -hmm. And in fact, my silver ring is out there in a cut block somewhere <laughs> where the Calamagrostis tore it off. Okay. And, uh, I saw grass as the arch enemy. And when I worked at provincial level, I worked with uh, Peace River and High Level and Athabasca. And as a consequence, I saw a lot more grass and I, I was grass phobic. And part of that, Let's go back. Now we've excluded fire and, and, or at least low intensity fire. And we say harvest emulates high intensity fire. So we cut the trees down. We scuff things up. We plant trees. And what have we done? We've broken up the rhizomes of the grass and the grass blows up. Right. And what in fact we've done, my friend Bob Day, May he rest in peace. Used to say, blah, 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 anthropogenic savannas. Right. And he was right. 
I mean, it was overstated. It was bombastic. But the reality was what we had done is we had done probably more for the grass than we had for the conifer. Right. And as a consequence, we would create on particularly on fresh to moist sites Mm -hmm. that were medium to rich nutrient regime. We would create disclimax stands of Calamagrostis. Now, a disclimax is a, a climax, an ecosystem climax, using that old succession theory that mm-hmm. I talked about, mm-hmm. self-sustaining plant community that's created by human intervention. And it's different than what would be on that site if natural succession had yeah. rolled along as, as it would. Yeah. So I was pretty phobic about grass and I uh, I decided to get back into forestry. I had I was really enjoying working in forestry, but I felt a need to be grounded. I felt a need to be part of forestry as sure. opposed to the guy from outside offering advice. So I uh, I went to work here in Alberta and I started helping people with stand tending. And one of the things I recognized very quickly was that as we had evolved our regen standards, we had also evolved our forest industry, and we had the most utilization of aspen of any province in Canada. And it was going into pulp mills, it was going into OSB plants, mm-hmm. and people were using aspen. And we were with, we were with aspen as farmers were with wild oats. Mm. What I mean by that is we fought aspen for so long as a competitor that we thought, oh, we'll just cut it down. It'll just come back bombers. Well, on certain sites and on certain aspects and on under certain conditions, absolutely. But if you cut it down when the ground is wet and it's not frozen, it doesn't come back for crap. If you cut it down on a medium to rich site that's fresh to moist, what do you get? You get grass with scattered aspen and the moose go, oh, bedding and browse. I'm hanging here. And as a consequence, our aspen reforestation strategies were, to be charitable, developmental. And now in parallel with that, we've got this new free-to-grow standard. Right? Yeah. So all of a sudden, we've got what I call the herbicide wars. And those dated from the mid-1990s to the early 2000s, where Aspen users were saying, you're compromising my growing stock. And the conifer user was saying, the only way I can get free to grow is to use glyphosate. Gotcha. And, you know, and there wasn't a lot of how can we make this work for each other. There was a lot of sitting at diagonally opposite corners of the table and hissing at each other. Right. (laughs) You know, and uh, part of it was that the aspen was allocated to one user and the conifer to another. Yeah. So nobody had a stake in in a uh, Mm -hmm. uh, both crops, so to speak. Right. So, you know, here we are with that free-to-grow regen standard and all these complexities and, like I say, the, the 100 plots and and we put in the 100 plots for establishment, our trees there, check the box, yes, they are, go back in whatever, anything from six to nine years check the performance. And, and, and put in another 100 plots and check another box that, yeah, the trees are here and a third box, the trees are free to grow. Mm-hmm. And in parallel with that, uh, 
fish and wildlife and the guys managing wildlife have always struggled with us, mm. okay? Because we have made this assumption, and it started early when I was first in university. It took until I was probably three years out of university to realize sustained yield multiple use was four words. I thought it was one word, sustained yield multiple use. Right. <laughs> so in other words, if we sustain the trees, everything else will come back and it'll all be good. Right. There was no recognition of the fact that other ecosystem services might pivot differently than the trees. And that was, I mean, when we started scarifying, well, when we first started cutting, they had problems like clear cutting as opposed to diameter limit cutting. And, and then it got worse because now we start scarifying and that makes it harder for animals to use that habitat. Right. And then, you know, we start planting and that means that the habitat's going to be unfriendly fairly quickly as the conifer comes up for, you know, certain species and recognize that in parallel with us, they're operating in a similar sort of world where, you know, when we first talked to them, it was about fur bearers, moose and elk. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, um, you know, now all of a sudden we show up and we say, you know what? We got to use herbicides. And they flipped out. They absolutely flipped out because it's like, holy smoke, these guys are going to turn everything into a monoculture. Right. And we sounded that way. It's that, yeah, that Not all of us, but, value thing. Yeah. But, but a lot of us sounded like, well, now I'm going to go spruce trees and pine trees and, you know, there's going to be needles on the forest floor, and that's going to be a forest. Right. And so, you know, here we've got this regen standard that kind of reflected that. And then over here, we've got some biologists that are really, really upset. And what finally came out of that was we brought in uh, a world-renowned ecologist, and we did a tour with the biologist through some sprayed cut blocks with this ecologist. And the ecologist said, you know, look, this isn't going to be a monoculture. And I've studied chemical herbicides for most of my career. Mm -hmm. And I don't give a rip for trees, but this is a forest. Right. Okay. But he, he said, but, you know, I, I'm going to offer you guys a suggestion. What you need to do is you have to find a middle ground. You have to negotiate something that works for everybody. And then you have to write some guidelines based on that. And as a result, what you will do is you will have both values or both sets of values on the landscape. That was incredibly good advice. And he actually helped us write the guidelines. And the guidelines were incredibly helpful because they, they looked at the big picture and said, okay, across this landscape, you don't ever want to treat more than this much with herbicide in any one five-year period. And at the block level, you want to leave tall trees and you don't want to, you know, you can spray some, but don't spray others. Yeah. And you want to leave areas unsprayed and you want to leave buffers on the water. And, you know, there, there were a whole, and, and even if it's seasonal water or a vernal pool, that really doesn't matter in terms of protecting the water system. That's a critical habitat. So you protect it. Right. So we developed some really good guidelines. And in parallel with this, we're still growing conifer pretty, pretty heavy footedly. Mm. And we've still got that performance regen standard. Right. And most foresters didn't 
really recognize what the performance regen standard was saying. They thought, if I can see my conifer trees, I'm going to blow by that performance standard. No issue at all. There were a couple guys, the one probably who most clearly saw where the performance standard was taking us was Brian McDonald, who was the silviculture guy at Blue Ridge Lumber. He saw that that performance standard was going to be very hard to meet. And he became sort of the archetype of the monoculture forester as far as anyone was concerned because he would say these things and they would say, oh, that's just Brian because all he wants is spruce and pine. Well, no. What it was is Brian saw where the standards were headed. And, you know, I'll give you an anecdote here. I worked with a fellow. His name's Peter Blake. And Peter, Peter's an ardent hunter. He was an ardent silviculturist when he worked. Mm. And he tried to set his own balance. And one of the things he did is where he didn't have grass, he did a lot of single-stem tending. And what he would do is he would tend with a brush saw or with herbicide. And he would tend in that 1.78-meter radius around the conifer trees, and he would space the trees. He would have the the tenders uh, establish an espacement that would give him his 80% stocking. Pretty clever. Right. And very, very expensive. About two and a half times the cost of using a chemical herbicide and a lot more footprint on the landscape. Because if you think about it, a helicopter flies over that block for 15 minutes or 40 guys with brush saws spend three days there, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. During passerine bird nesting. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, costs and benefits. Yeah. And all this just to meet a performance standard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it gets worse. Yeah. Okay. So now we start talking about the performance standard because the only way we're going to resolve the issue between coniferous and deciduous users is with a performance standard that recognizes both species and treats them somewhat equally. So one of the first tinkers with the standard was they changed the free-to-grow cylinder. They moved it up to two meters from 1.78. Okay. My friend Peter went out and did regen surveys, performance regen surveys on all those blocks, or at least the first year of those blocks, and they all failed. Right. And he was... Equally parts apoplectic and devastated. Right. And my advice to him as his consultant slash advisor was what we've got here is we've got conflicting requirements in policy. The one requirement is that we've got to have these free-to-grow conifer. The other requirement is that we've got to have wildlife habitat. And in order to sustain both, you use single-stem tending. The sh- a modest shift, a very minor shift in conifer policy knocked you out. Yeah. And what that points to is not a uh, flaw in the reforestation process, but it says that our policy and our measurement policy isn't recognizing both values adequately. There's a disconnect, yeah. Yeah. So I said, you know, the the solution as I see it 
is we've got to get some senior-level people, some policy-level people out here and talk this through. And we sat down with Peter's area forester, who is still practicing up in that country, Craig Brown, and Craig absolutely understood what we were saying, and he said, I will get my guys out here. Count on it. ADM and the silviculture guy responsible for changing that policy. And we sat down with Dave Hervio, who is now the provincial caribou specialist, but in those days was regional biologist, and explained, and he said, you're right, that's the problem. Let's talk it out. So we took two ADMs, some senior bureaucrats, and the two of us to the field and took them to one of these blocks and walked them through the block with no context. Just said, we, you know, we want to talk about the reforestation standard. And we walked them through the block and we got back to where we'd landed the helicopter. And we said, so what do you think? And the ADM for forestry said, I want every block in Alberta to look like that. Right. And the fish and wildlife guy said, I can live with that. Right. And the guy who wrote the regen standard said, yeah, that looks good. And then we delivered the punchline. We said, that block failed. Yeah. That block is not going to go back into the growing stock because it's not free to grow. Right. And we have a problem. And you have a problem because the only way we can put that block back into the growing stock is we're going to load up a helicopter with glyphosate. We're going to make those good aspen. Yeah. You know, that's that's where we are. We are stuck right. with that. Right. Mm-hmm. And the ADM for forestry said, that's wrong. We got to fix this. Mm-hmm. And that and a number of other field trips that he had with other people delivering the same message mm-hmm. got him thinking. And that brought us to the Regeneration Standard of Alberta. That's the current, yeah. That's the current standard. That's the standard you mentioned that, you know, now, you know, in the 90s. Yeah. Okay. That, and, and that standard is very different. What that standard does is it says, we're going to test this opening to see how well it aligns with the assumptions you made in writing your forest management plan mm-hmm. at age 14. Right. We're going to measure and we're going to see if you're on the right trajectory to the outcome that underpins your plan. That's a huge step forward. Yeah. And Alberta was the first jurisdiction in Canada to take that step. Mm-hmm. So I got several trips out of province as we were launching RSA to go to conferences and talk to other foresters about how this was working and how well we thought it would work and where it was headed. And the other thing about that standard is it doesn't use a grid. Right. It uses high resolution imagery. It covers the entire land base. It's ground truth with statistical rigor. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the way it's measured and what it's measured mm-hmm. is a quantum leap forward. It's mm-hmm. as big a leap forward as back in the early seventies when we went to a grid survey and said 40% stocking. Right. It's, it's the next big step. Mm-hmm. All the other steps in between were incremental. And we've, you know, we've, we've made this, this leap, a mm-hmm. quantum leap. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good standard and it's a really good approach mm-hmm. for the trees. For the trees, yeah. And, you know, hats off, like we're doing really well. <laughs> the challenge we've got though is that as time has gone on, 
other stakeholders have become much more sophisticated. I mean, I remember back in the day when I was in the Fish and Game Association back in the late 1960s, we were lobbying for a bounty on wolves. That was our big thing. We wanted the bounty on wolves because they're killing all our elk. Yeah. Right? Uh, Nowadays, stakeholders talk about other ecosystem services. They say, I want my ecosystem services to be considered. And I want the forest to be much more intricate, and I want the forest to produce to produce outcomes toward all these various values. And nobody wants all the values. Just like Dan Harrison told you, you know, the, the moose guys want moose, and the bear guys want Everyone bears, bias, and, the, yeah. and the berry pickers want berries, and the indigenous people want moose and medicinal plants. Yeah. So nobody's kind of looking at the big view yeah. and telling us, well, we're comfortable with the big view. They're advocating for a specific outcome. Mm. But it's incumbent on us, if we're going to call ourselves the manager of the forest, that we have to think about those things. Yeah. So what have we done? We've said, well, we've got this great system and we've got all these assumptions and we're, we're going to maintain the forest. And we've moved away from sustained yield multiple use where we say, okay, we're, we're, you know, if we get the trees, everything else is good. What we've gone to is what I view as an incremental step which is the course filter approach, where we say, okay, what features or aspects of the forest provide the necessities that underpin these other ecosystem services? So, you know, coarse woody debris, retention, uh, variability in height structure, uh, variability in light transmission, variations in composition, all of those things. We talk about those as coarse filters. And if we can sustain those as part of uh, harvesting and renewing the forest, mm-hmm. we're going to have these other values. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the way we maintain those is we do something like those wildlife guidelines I talked about for herbicide use. What we do is we establish boundaries and limits on what we do and how we do it right. in harvesting and managing the forest. So what we've got is a constraints-based approach to supplying ecosystem services. Yeah. And I don't know how well it works. I suspect the Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute at some point will be able to tell us a little bit about how well that works, but it's going to take some time, and it's going to take uh, some pretty clever thinking on analysis. And in the meantime, we've got people talking about emulating natural disturbance regimes and so on and so forth. But are we really emulating natural disturbance? I don't know. Because yeah. what where I'm at with all that is that what we thought was natural disturbance was actually indigenous fire stick management mm-hmm. interrupted by a disease wave that took a whole bunch of indigenous, indigenous people off the landscape before we got here. And then when we got here, we said, we're going to protect the forest. Yeah. So what we've got is a forest that's an artifact of a whole bunch of different anthropogenic mm-hmm. impacts. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying It is what fact. it is. Yeah. Fact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what I'm really concerned about is that we really aren't measuring ecosystem services. We're not looking at that supply. Mm-hmm. 
what we're doing is we're saying, well, if we do what we're doing, we'll get it. Or we've got other folks saying, well, you've got to maintain old growth. And you've got a certain level of old growth. You need a certain level of old growth on the landscape. You need a certain level of this, a certain level of that. And it's all about really constraints. And it's, 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 a couple of incremental steps away from multiple use. Well, I feel like we're constraining because we don't know, right? We're constraining because, okay, well, this is something we're worried about. Let's just constrain that, stay away from it. Hopefully, that will take care of itself while we continue to do what we do. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I think we're putting ourselves at serious risk with that approach. And there are a number of reasons I think we're at serious risk. One thing is that I think that we still don't really understand the dynamics of of how forests uh, achieve the volumes that we harvest, and especially mixed woods, okay? Uh, And I, you know, there's a lot of times I struggle with the people who advocate for Aspen, but one thing where I'm completely down with them is when we go into an area, we harvest a mixed wood, we, we replant it with conifers, and we go back three years later and we say this is going to be a deciduous leading mixed wood, so I'll spray 50% of the block, and that means I'll have 50% spruce, 50% aspen. Right. That's not a mixed wood. Right. And some of those folks call that apartheid for trees, and I have to say I can fully understand how they feel. So, that being said, how do we do better? We've got the tools, but there's a couple of things constraining us from using the tools. One thing that constrains us from being much more granular in our management of mixed woods is that it's very costly. And another is that we don't have people with the skill sets to do it on the ground. At one point, we did. At one point, we had people, really good people, doing brush saw tending and doing basal bark herbicide tending, both of which are very granular. Mm -hmm. Now we've got really one contractor in Alberta who's really good at brush saw tending, and we've got no contractors that are good at basal bark tending. Right. And that's the same across Canada. We've, We've really let that slip. And the other thing is... We really don't have a good way of describing the outcome we want. Well, that's the thing. We want – so we want we want volume. We want timber volume to sustain an industry and sustain the economy and have sustainable material, right? But we also want – like you said, we want biodiversity for ungulates and for bird species. We want – Edible plants, we want medicinal plants, plants. we want we want clean water, we want good fish habitat, we want carbon storage, we want, you know, uh, resilient forests, we want mosaics, we want all we want everything, right? That's right. Um like Dan said, right? Like Dan Harrison said, he said the moose hunters want moose, the 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 deer hunters want deer, the bear hunters want bears, and the truth is they don't all exist at maximum levels of population numbers together because that's not how ecology works. That's right. right? And so And and then in parallel with that, it gets worse. (laughs) We have a whole bunch of other footprint on the landscape. And uh, it's not just forestry, yeah. When when you were talking to Mike Flanagan uh, one of the things Mike said really, really resonated with me. Okay. And that was Mike said, you know, we look at fire in Alberta's forests differently than we do anywhere else in Canada because there's so much other infrastructure on that landscape. Yeah, yeah. I remember him saying that, yeah. And 
you know, I've, I, I've had the privilege of working across Canada and a lot in the U.S. Pacific Northwest and also up into Alaska. And I would have to say that our boreal forest here in Alberta is the most accessible native forest I've ever dealt with because of that footprint. Mm-hmm. And that footprint means that there's other impacts on those ecosystem services and other land that isn't producing those ecosystem services. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I had a, a real privilege back in the early 2000s to work on a detailed forest management plan led by Jonathan Russell. And I don't know if you know no. who Jonathan is. No. Jonathan was the senior planner at Miller Western Forest Products at the time. And Jonathan had this vision that instead of treating these other ecosystem services as constraints that limit what we do, we treat them as co-values. Right. And when we do our optimization process, we include them in the optimization. Right. So that we're actually treating those values through time and space uh-huh. the same way we treat the wood. Yeah. And so what, what do you, what does that look like? Cause we've discussed that a lot in a few different episodes. We well, discussed that co-value thing. Yeah. How do you think that differs from constraints? Do you think that means, um, for example, I was recently, just this morning, actually, I was reading, um, I can't even remember the name of the document, but I was, I was interested in what John Ines, sorry, John Innes said in the old growth episode about Swedish forests and how they manage it, right? And so I was reading through their thing and they had they had an interesting difference in that it was there's more freedom by companies to do what they need to do to accomplish whatever they need to accomplish. However, there's a much heavier uh stakeholder component in the management. So it well, I so, think it, it looks a couple of ways, Matt. Yeah, so what does I, it look I, like? I yeah. think that the first thing is and and recognize even the current regeneration standard couldn't have happened at the start of my career because what enables us to do what we now do to assess outcomes Mm -hmm. is high quality image collection and computerized data manipulation and modeling. Yeah. And we didn't have those things. So we've, we've got incredible tools and what I'm advocating is we need to bring those tools to bear on those other values with the same intensity we bring those tools to bear on wood. Yeah. Okay. So that's the first thing about co-management is that now you're modeling all the ecosystem services, not just the fiber. Right. The other thing is, and this is what you just alluded to, is stakeholder. Right. What you need to do is you need to consult and engage with stakeholders and you need to engage with them, not at the level where you sit down and say, what do you want? Not after the plan's finished. And you well, or even it. before you start the plan. Yeah. What do you want? We'll put it in the plan. Right. They're involved as the plan is being built and as you iterate through this, this, this optimization exercise. Right. Because ultimately your point about you can't have it all, all the time everywhere. Really? <laughs> I, I couldn't resist. Uh, the, the thing is that if stakeholders are involved and see that optimization process and see that, in fact, you can't do that, they're going to be more receptive to saying, okay, well, maybe I'm going to have moose for five years after harvest. 
and then I'm going to have moose somewhere else yeah. for the next five years. Okay, so you, you help them understand that this is going to be a shifting mosaic of plant communities, not just trees, but yeah. plant communities that eventually become forests yeah. and the associated ecosystem services. Yeah. And the, I think the way you do that is what Jonathan started with on that planet Miller, where instead of using uh, essentially patchworks to model wood, he used patchworks to model habitat supply for 20 species of animal that his stakeholder group helped him introduce. Right. So by going to a fine filter approach on 20 species of interest, he was able to start looking at ecosystem service availability through space and time in parallel with wood. And the other thing he did, which was really incredible, is he built silviculture into that and said, okay, what are the silviculture costs going to be? What are the silviculture bottlenecks going to be? to achieving this. So now he's got this multidimensional view that's about the wood, it's yeah. about the harvesting, it's about the renewal of the forest, and it's about the outcomes. And, you know, the, the hardest part of that modeling was developing the supply curves that underpinned getting the habitat supply. Right? Mm -hmm. Because what does the plant community look like from zero to where it's now the stand on the trajectory that we put into the DFMP, mm -hmm. Detailed Forest Management Plan? Yeah. What, what does it look like for that first 20 or 30 years? Yeah. And what we did in that case is we did uh, expert opinion workshop where we brought in uh, a bunch of silviculture foresters explained what we were trying to do, and they drew plant community assembly diagrams. Okay, now this is the other piece that feeds this, okay. is if you step away from the deterministic succession, mm -hmm. now you can talk plant community assembly. And plant community assembly is essentially succession, but it's based on differences in the start point. And in the fact that a whole bunch of stochastic factors influence that plant community and it shifts and moves in response to those factors. Okay. And here's one where I think we of foresters have really missed the boat. Okay. Okay. Most other people who manage uh, natural plant communities, so the grazing guys and the park guys and all of those guys use assembly theory, and we still run around talking succession. Okay. Can you explain – so explain that to me one more time. I think I missed it. So I'm trying to understand the assembly portion. Like, Okay. What assembly theory does is it says you've got a disturbance. Yeah. What propagules are available to you? Mm -hmm. What has disturbance done to the site? So yeah. what does the site look like in terms of receptivity? Yeah. And as a result, what plant community is going to start on that site? Oh, okay. Instead of okay. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. That's the first step. Mm -hmm. But then instead of saying, well, we've got that community, so in 20 years it'll be this, and in 40 years it'll be that, and in 100 years it'll be pine trees. Making assumptions, yeah. You say, okay, uh, what are the likely factors to impact that community? Okay. Well, one of the things that impacts our forests in a huge way is drought. 
because drought is an incredibly common phenomenon throughout Alberta's forests. And when you have drought, it shifts the trajectory of that community. And if the drought happens when the community is very young, the shift in the trajectory is very different than if the forest is 20 years old. Established, yeah. Okay, and that's what assembly theory is about, is it's about that not at random start, but that variability mm. in start conditions, and then the fact that that community is going to get nudged and shifted and bumped around, right. both by silviculturists who call those things treatments, and by natural phenomena. Think forest tent caterpillar. I mean, I don't know how much time you've spent uh, kind of in north-central Alberta, mm. but, I mean, there's 15 to 20 percent aspen mortality up there as a result of five years of forest tent caterpillar and if you think about that if that happened before white guys got here and they showed up 60 years later they'd go wow look at that pure spruce stand at age 120 yeah completely yeah yeah and and that's because the caterpillars yeah right yeah so assembly theory is a mechanism to start bringing that in Gotcha. And so what we did is we used assembly theory to build the habitat supply model. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, that was a really good exercise, and I was really, really excited by it. And then I realized that we had done uh, a really good job on the stakeholder side and on the forestry side. And then what we did is we just wrote out industrial disturbance as it's out of the land base and it'll never be back in and uh, it, it doesn't supply habitat. Just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, three years pre-COVID, I was working with Atco Electric and we uh, they asked me to develop a research model where they would emulate the Bramble and Burns research that looked at wildlife habitat on linear disturbance in Pennsylvania for 50 years. Mm-hmm. An incredible study and an, an incredibly dated study now because of these evolutions we've spoken about. And I said, well, there's a better way. You could do habitat supply mm-hmm. and here's how you do it. And I explained this methodology and so we went out and we selected a piece of right-of-way and we collaborated with some pipeline guys and some oil sector guys and with Miller Western and Blue Ridge Lumber. And we actually modeled habitat on the right-of-way. At least we set up the models and we tested it and we saw it would work. Right. And then we sat down to brainstorm, where does it go next? How how would we actually turn this into something meaningful? Mm -hmm. And we realized that what we had was a platform for collaboration. Okay, yeah. a platform where you could bring in the energy industry and the energy transmission industry and the electrical transmission industry and the forest industry and stakeholders and sit around the table and say, okay, we've got this piece of forest. Here's what it looks like today. Here's how we're thinking of disturbing it. What's the habitat on that piece of forest going to look like through time? Mm -hmm. And then the kicker, if we're all in this together and we've got caribou as an issue, the pipeline guy says, well, you know what? I can do incredible benefit for caribou by breaking up sight lines and making my pipelines hard to travel. But that's at a cost to me. 
Right. But me doing that is going to enable you guys to continue to do what you do. Mm-hmm. Or at least less modification of what you do. So how about you help me out with this? That's exactly, you know, before you started this little piece of the of the talk, that's where my brain went. It was exactly that. I was like, I almost see like there needs to be more of an interconnectivity of all stakeholders, actual fiscal inclusion, because that's ultimately what what's stopping this high view or, or, or you know what I mean, this this bigger view of, of management from happening is that there's, there's not the money to do it, right? Not like force companies can't afford to whatever to, to manage everything for everything, or and there's, just and and there's abundant money to do it. Sure, if maybe, you take this approach, if you take this approach, and that's what I mean. So there's there's because everyone's taking, they're looking after their own resource or their own interest, and not so much taking into account everything at the same time. They're looking at it, you know, through a through a microscope instead of looking at the whole picture. We're well, missing out on opportunities here. I'm, I'm going to give you reason for optimism. Sure. Okay. So <laughs> I've, I've just described a, a conceptual approach. Yeah. Okay. About a week before the first COVID lockdown, we had a workshop at Nate. And the reason was is that the uh, Nate essentially uh, managed the administrative aspects of this this trial project. The guy who did the modeling was Stephen Yamasaki, who I have immense respect for and who I'm sad to say is no longer a consultant and works for Quebec Ministry of Natural Resources because access to Stephen uh, was an incredible asset to this process. Right. Uh, and, and I was the gadfly making sure things got done. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, Nate hosted this workshop. They've got some really good business facilitators at Nate. Okay. They teach business facilitation. Right. So they've got some people who are really good at it, and they provided the facilitation. And what we did is we brought in about 30 people, invitation only, and we specifically excluded government because government has a stake in the status quo. And we felt that government would say, you know, you guys, this is all great. It's airy-fairy, but the standards are. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we wanted to talk conceptual. Yeah. What could we do? What could we do? What's yeah. possible? Mm-hmm. What's the, what's, what is the possible? If there was no constraints, what would we do yeah. to be the best managers it could be? Yeah. yeah. And then what we did is we put together little focus groups and we made sure that we had people from all the various interest groups in our focus group. And we brought in stakeholders, several indigenous stakeholders, in fact, and we made sure one of them was in each group. And we did a one-day workshop. And what we did is the first half of the day we presented the approach. And I, I was really disappointed because I asked Jonathan Russell to come give our keynote, and he wouldn't. Uh. And uh, I think that shows that he's bitter, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. Uh, but set that aside, we did this. This Here's the concept. Here's what it looks like. Here's what we did on right-of-ways to show you how we use these tools. And mm-hmm. St- Stephen did that piece. And then the afternoon – we broke people into these focus groups and we made the focus groups 
comprehensive. So a stakeholder, a pipeline guy, a power line guy, a forestry person, mm. right? Yeah. And so we had about five or six people and we had five or six groups and we separated them so nobody could overhear anybody else. And we gave them questions. Mm. And they had to work through the solutions and they not only did they do presentations, but they had to give us uh, figures and, and, and it was we, – we challenged them in different ways. Right. So it wasn't always just sit down with a list of questions. Okay. And we – the facilitators sought to push them to conflict. Mm. Because only by identifying the conflicts could we start coming to solutions. Right. And, you know, we, we did that, and at 3.30, we're ready to wrap up, and we said, okay, uh, you know, we're going to open the floor. Yeah. And tell us what you thought. Tell us how we could do better. Give us feedback. And, you know, there were a few people who were pretty stuck in the current paradigm because they're comfortable with it and because they've got They've got some levers sure. in that paradigm. Yeah. And one of the things about this approach is nobody's got levers, mm -hmm. right? Everybody's in own. there working equally to solve problems. But set aside those people who are kind of caught in the current paradigm. Far and away, the bulk of the players were just absolutely pumped. Right. And, you know, the, the, uh, there, there were several players who got up and said, well, I represent and I won't name the company, but it's the largest Canadian-owned oil company, and said, you know what? we got to make the next step. we got to pick a research area and actually do this collaborative approach you're talking about. And if you guys can pick an area, we're in. Right. We're in for 20 to 25% of the cost. Yeah. Whatever that is. Yeah. Just let us know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Matt, that's where I see the future going. Absolutely. And I, as a forester, I'm both delighted and concerned. Mm -hmm. I'm delighted because I think that uh, the forest will benefit. But I'm concerned because if we take that approach, we're no longer going to have the same access to wood supply we do now. Sure. Inevitably. Yeah. Inevitably. And I think we need to recognize that and we need to get ahead of it. I agree. Yeah. And, and I mean, there are a number of ways to get ahead of it. I listened to your talk with Tony Krasinowski mm -hmm. and he was talking about tree farms and I, I nearly sent you an email about those, but, <laughs> but, uh, uh, technical quibbles on my part aside, he was talking about the triad approach where, you know, we have some land base and he's talking private land and realistically that's where it would have to be right. where we do grow essentially monocultures or maybe bicultures. Well, even in the, in the, in the old growth episode, Gary was talking about a temporary triad approach as well yep. while they sort out what they're going to do, right? Yep. Which is, yeah, I don't know. Yep. So that might be part of the solution to the challenges wood supply will face under a, an approach like this. Mm -hmm. But I'm heartened because I've been going along here for the last 20 years feeling like if we don't get better at stakeholder involvement. Yeah. Notice I didn't say engagement. I said involvement. Mm -hmm. And we don't get better 
at producing a suite of ecosystem services, at some point the public's going to say, you know what? We're going to have the geographers manage our forest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and that's and that's kind of the concern I think that we've both discussed and, and put yep. forward a few times now, right? Is yep. that we they the public has the capacity to kick industry off the landscape if it deems it's not doing a good job, right? And, and it's I, not even not doing a good job. It's that we've been a little too focused. Sure. And you know, I but you know, again, uh, we're only now getting the tools that enable us to do that sort of management. Mm -hmm. And what we're lacking right now is the understanding of assembly theory and how we can link treatment of various features on the landscape Mm -hmm. to plant community assembly. And then the next step, which is knitting those features together so that those species assemblages work. Yeah. Well, and, and one thing I, lo- I like about the having everybody at the same table talking about the management plan, right? The, as, a, as a totality, not just for yep. management, but the energy and everything else is that now everyone is equally as responsible as well, right? right? So instead of the NGOs standing on the side saying, you screwed this up, you screwed this up, we're the good guys. Meanwhile, they don't have any real responsibility. They have besides, no skin in the game. Right. Yep. Now they have now they have to stand up and 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 prove that the knowledge works, right? And that they that they have an actual application that's functional instead of just saying we want you to do better and not having an answer for what that looks like. Now I, I like that this what this does is it it makes all values worth worthy, right? All values are worthy of of, of managing for and including, but it also puts a situation where the onus isn't on the companies to do this. Now the onus is on everybody to do it together because we, we, you know what I mean? Like if, cause the companies yep. can't be expected to, to have all of the knowledge about all of these things. They need that collaboration. Right. And That's so right. it's, it's an interesting, I love it. I, I, I foresee a lot of pushback against that, not because of the, because of the fear. I think it's because of the fear of what may or may not happen with, and it, you know, it also amounts it, it, cut. it puts a lot of trust in modeling. Yeah. Okay. And and they're skeptics. Uh, but you know, if you think about it, what we've really invented, yeah. inverted commas there, is the regional plan. But <laughs> yeah, what we've done is we've made it a dynamic, stakeholder-driven plan. But it's the same concept as the regional planning process. Except now, instead of trying to make it static, we've made it dynamic. And, you know, I, I think the, the big challenge when this goes forward, and I think it will go forward. It is a when. Yeah. I think there's, you're right. there's enough people know about this and are interested in it that once we're past the craziness of, of COVID-19, yeah. it will, it will reemerge. Uh, but I think that the, the the real challenge when it goes forward is that we're going to have to bring the regulators' level of comfort with this up. Well, and and but if if everyone else is on board, the regulators don't really, you know what I mean? They're, oh, <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, Matt, <laughs> I, I I told you about Jonathan Russell's plan. Sure. Right? 
And we took a day to explain it to a guy from ASRD who had a lot of influence. If he didn't sign the plan, the plan wouldn't get approved, Mm -hmm. right? So we took a day to kind of walk him through Mm. what we did and explain the assembly diagrams and show them the modeling process and talk about the fine filter approach versus the coarse filter approach. Mm. And, you know, essentially devoted ourselves. And he went away saying, I'll have to think about this. And three days later, he phoned me up and he says, you know what you guys have done is you found out, found a way to cheap out on silviculture. (laughs) So don't underestimate the, strength of the walls of the silos. Yeah. There's always a way to spin the narrative, right? In well, one way if, or the if other. You're, if the walls of your th- silo are really, really thick, yeah. all you ever see is what goes overhead. Right. Right? Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's definitely an issue we but I don't think it changes the, it doesn't the change course the, of what we have to do, right? It just it, creates more... I, I think it's inevitable. It I is think inevitable, it's for sure. inevitable and... Uh, I hate to say it because I'm an old guy, but I think old guys are the worst for that because <laughs> old guys tend to look back at the heyday of their careers as when it was best. Yeah. And it's gone downhill from there. And also they tend not to keep up with new developments. And as a consequence, they're skeptical of what new tools and new techniques can give us and do for us. But you know, I, I, I see it as the future and I'll, I'll be candid. I'm heartened by that because, um, I, I think I, I'm still where I was when all this started. And that is that if we don't keep doing better, we're not going to be out there managing the forest. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And it's a, and it's an interesting approach because it just, it, it takes that. It takes it takes us away also from the concept of managing for things to be more natural, and instead we start thinking about it as managing for our preferences, for the things that we've decided that we want actively, and including all of those things in the exact same plan, allowing them to be interactive and allowing them to uh, us to understand how they interact, right? And we accept that they change. And accept all, all that, right? Because right That's now, big. I think we still like you. You talk to a lot of people, and they still have the assumption that we're managing natural places, right? Like natural, like meaning like before people got here. And the and the truth is that it's just a faulty assumption, right? And I don't think that I, I don't think that we need to try to get back to natural. I think we just need to be able to find some balance that we agree is but beneficial for, for as many values as possible and and try to maintain that balance because we started with a system that was that was not natural and how, that, getting back to that same unnatural system is not beneficial <laughs> that was that was our we we made two huge screw ups when right. we started to manage the forest and i mentioned it earlier mm-hmm. the first and probably biggest screw up was we took fire right out of the system we right. saw no value to fire right and the second really, really big screw up is we didn't recognize the hand of man in the forest condition of the forest that we first came to. We thought these are natural forests and, you know, all the native people did is live in skin huts and eat berries and meat when, in <laughs> fact, 
uh, they pretty actively manage the forest. And if you think about the fact that probably 70% or more of indigenous people died before we ever got here, this was a much more populous place than we thought. Oh, yeah. And as a consequence, it was much more widely managed. Mm-hmm. The sophistication, I think it only becomes more and more evident through Western science. I mean, obviously, indigenous knowledge has known this and continues to know this and continues to tout it. But Western science is just beginning to realize the sophistication of indigenous management pre-colonization and that that was was in and of itself a balanced system that was – it was it, it was a different way of managing because they had different values and all that kind of thing. But yeah, it wasn't a without people. That's right. System. N- right? Nor was it. Nor was it people grubbing away at the edges and taking whatever no. the system would give them. No, they were fully no. integrated in yep. in the deep dark woods and managing yep. it actively. And yep. and yeah. So uh, speaking to that, what? How do you foresee the the future of forest management, specifically in relation to? Uh, First Nations involvement and and because I I've had a lot of discussions, um, particularly the one I'm going to release, uh, the next one I'm going to release with with John Parkins, sociologist from the U of A, um, about community forests and and maybe the the intention is not to re- reduce the amount of volume that like industry gets or anything like that, but change the management so that First Nations can manage that area around them for the values that they want. And inevitably they're also going to want, you know what I mean? Economic returns as well. So I, I, there's, there's been a lot of research in that realm. And I just wanted to know, I, I see the indigenous involvement in forest management only getting more heavily involved. And I see it only getting more integrated. And I just, I wanted to know what you thought. Cause I know up until now it's been, it's, it's been a cha- It's been an area of conflict for sure. Well, that's one of the things I really like about the approach I just just described. Right. Is the indigenous people are at the table, yeah, and they aren't managing the area five miles around the edge of where they live. They're involved in the decisions, but they don't have a veto either. Gotcha. It's it's a collaborative thing, and I think I, I I've sat on the indigenous side of the table. I helped manage a community woodlot for a an indigenous community for about three years. Mm. And there were a couple of things that I I found absolutely hair-pulling about it. Mm. One is that the indigenous community is just like us. In fact, I told them once they were like a bunch of conservative politicians because, <laughs> you know, everybody's got an opinion and they're all fairly similar, but nobody's going to give up even one millimeter, so that means we can't bring things to a point. Okay? And that's not a fault of indigenous people. That's, That's pe- people. That's people. Yeah. That's people <laughs> unless you provide a process that helps them reach uh, an understanding. Okay? And the other thing is that uh, I think that a lot of indigenous people are carrying an enormous amount of well-deserved resentment toward mainstream Settler society, because there have been some horrors perpetrated, mm. and those horrors have resonated and continue to resonate through their culture. And you know, I I think we need to recognize that uh, there's going to be a bit of a pendulum effect here, yeah, and that 
things are until things swing toward the indigenous side of the uh, the ark mm-hmm. um we're not going to be able to engage these people uh as completely as we would like because mm-hmm. the the key piece of the management process i just described is trust yeah you have to trust all the other participants absolutely that they're dealing with you honestly and that they'll do what they say they're going to do. Yeah. And if you use those two criteria to measure our engagement with indigenous people, mm-hmm. um, well, I don't think there's a grade low enough on the report card for us to be graded. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think we've got to overcome that mm-hmm. before we can start actually moving towards something more collaborative. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. I think a lot of the misunderstanding too of what's going on, um, from any stakeholder about any other stakeholder, you know what I mean? Like you talk to the biologists about the oil company or the oil company about the forestry company, or there's all a lot of misinformation, a lot of misunderstanding of what's actually going on. All of a sudden, if we're all at the same table talking the same stuff, that misinformation kind of is going to start to disappear because now we're all talking constantly, right? And it's who, who also to add to that, who do you see? Because the thing you said was you need an administrator to do these things. I, I Who's going to do that? I, I think it's got to be a neutral third party. I don't think it can be a forester. Right. No, no, no. For but, sure and, not. It and, has to be a neutral. So who who do you foresee as being the neutral? I, I suspect the people whose discipline is geography would be the people to lead that. People who probably had a co-discipline geography and psychology. Okay. So that they, they know how to. So they don't need to, to know necessarily like more, more people management and. They, well, they have to understand people and they have to understand managing information about landscapes, but they don't necessarily have to have the technical expertise for the landscape components. Because they're an administrator. They're not to meant, meant to lead the conversation. They're just meant to they're administer. Facilitators. It. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Because I think that's an important point to make. Because I think most people, or not most people, but people may assume that, okay, the administrator would be the government, but they're also a biased party that the has. Government's a stakeholder. Yeah, another stakeholder, right? So, yeah, so you need – yeah. You know, Matt, the interesting thing from my perspective is I've run this up the flagpole a few times. And when I run the, it up the flagpole with most forest companies, I've gotten a whole bunch of reasons why it can't work. There's always going to be arguments why, right? Yeah. And when I've run it up the flagpole with energy companies or energy transmission companies, what I've got is how can we make it work? Interesting. And I I think that part of it is that um, inherent to this is a recognition that foresters will no longer be paramount. We'll be – we will have become – Expert stakeholders. You think there's a fear that we'll lose power or something? We'll lose control. Ah. And that's true. But that's also the point in a way. (laughs) I think it better reflects the reality of the world we live in. Yeah. Uh, You know, and, you know, I I mean – like I keep telling you, I, I'm trying harder and harder to be retired. One of my great <laughs> regrets about uh, flattening out that glide slope into real retirement is that I won't be around to sure. be part of this. Right. But I also think it's not fair for me to want to be around because I'm too vested and too part of how we got where we are today. True. And it's got to be people like you. 
and people of the generation behind you who take this forward because you don't have the same personal investment. So you can invest yourself in the new, in, yeah. in where this is going. And I, uh, I, I wish you well in doing that. Yeah. And I encourage the next generation of forester to engage in this because I, I think that it will be a really exciting and ultimately incredibly rewarding experience. Absolutely. Because you'll look at a landscape and say, I helped create that landscape. Uh-huh. I mean, my my accomplishment is I look at reforested areas and say, I helped put that forest back. Mm. And then I drive past six new well sites and across a newly constructed pipeline and cringe a little bit. But the the reality is that people who are part of an approach like this are going to own that landscape yeah, in yeah, their yeah. heads. There's no more pointing fingers. There's no more. There's no more us and them. No more us and them. It's 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 just us. It's we. It's we. It's we. No, I like I like that a lot. That's a. I mean, it's an, an incredibly optimistic and complicated. I shouldn't even say complicated. I would. I should say challenging. It's challenging because it's not what we do. You know what I mean? Like realistically, when you start to think about the challenges it represents, it's not really more complicated it probably offers a lot more solutions and and savings fiscal savings than than it does increased cost right because all of a sudden now everyone is is interacting all the time you don't have to go back and you know what i mean the monitoring will won't require as much monitoring anymore because everyone's looking at everyone all the time and you're going to well, have you're, you're going to monitor the landscape not discrete pieces exactly so it's it's I think you're right. This holistic approach of including everything. And I think people will shy away from it because like you said, it's not what we do and it sounds scary. It sounds like it's going to be hard to do. It's going to be all kinds of headaches. We're going to deal with politics. I might lose something. I might lose something. And I'll lose the power that I, that I've, you know, spent so long accruing to try and do what I think is the right thing for the, for the landscape. Um, but yeah, now all of a sudden it's all on the table, right? It's all on the table. And there's the proof is in the pudding. Like you, you can't just sell someone on something. You can't say, "Oh, this is this is what I can do." It's like, no, no, put it on the table and show us. And and the, the, yeah, the other part of it, and this gets back to a lot of the the concerns that have been raised in other podcasts. Um, it's eleven. It's eleven forty-seven, by the way. Just okay, so you know. I'm going to have to go pretty quick. Yeah, uh, is that it recognizes change. Uh-huh. And one of the challenges we have is that a lot of stakeholders don't recognize change. They yeah. don't appreciate change. And what this does is it makes change the center mm-hmm. of the model. Yeah, we, we lean into it yeah. instead of shying away from it and worrying about Because I think, I think all these industries and all these stakeholders are constantly I, – I, I think there's an understanding that like – they're they're wanting to evolve too. They're moving in this direction, but they're all moving in, in this in a direction of wanting to evolve and get become better managers in their own way. And now, all of a sudden, if you take them all and bring them to the same place, now you get rid of a lot of this obscurity and 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 guessing work. And it's just no. This is what is going on. This is what we all agree on. This is what we've come to the table at. Yep. And it just I see so much opportunity there to do better. In in every single way possible, yeah, and I, I hope it's something that's attainable. I think it is. I I think that it's going to take a lot of learning. Mm-hmm. It's going to take 
personal growth on the part of a lot of participants. Taking the ego aside, that's for sure. Yep. That's the yep. biggest thing. Yeah, putting the ego in a bucket's a hard thing to do. Uh-huh. And uh, it's going to take some faith. Yeah. But once there's some measurable, observable outcomes, it's going to sprout wings. Yeah, there's been a lot of discussions really about like I remember going to a conference, uh, ecosystem based management conference uh, a few years back, and I did actually I did a couple episodes with it too. One was with David Anderson, and there was another gentleman I forget his name, but um, it would have been the one I released right before the David Anderson one. And um, I remember this is what we were discussing, right? All the stakeholders were there, and this is what we were discussing. How do we do this? Right. And I think it was so ethereal at the time that I was like, this is exciting. I like this, but there was no real, I didn't go home with anything really. Right. There was nothing tangible about it. And that's what I think frustrates people about having these conversations is they're like, oh, this is all well and good and we'll just do it. But like, how do we start? Where do we begin? How do we, how do we do this? Where's the ignition? Where's the ignition? Cause (laughs) it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of talking and not a lot of doing, right? Like, like, like like Derek likes to say, you know, you gotta, you gotta walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Right. And it's, and it, it's it's important, and and now I think now is the time that we start pulling the trigger on this, right? And 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 uh, I've thought that for fifteen years, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. well, who who do you think who who's the onus on who who should like? Because someone has to initiate it, right? Who initiates this? You're well, leaving, so well, I don't have the time. Yeah, you know, but I I've, <laughs> I've handed off my baton. Okay. okay, and there's a there's a guy at Nate, yeah. Kevin Kemble, okay, who really sees the value of this, and I think Nate's a really good place for this to start because mm-hmm. they've got those facilitation skills, sure. which is the the the, the core. Uh, a guy, the guy from Atco, who basically went out and got a million dollars and told me figure out how to spend it. <laughs> uh, his name's Alex Bloss. Okay. Uh, you know, and there were a number of people from the energy sector, and there were people, uh, Tim McCready from Miller Western, uh, Shane Sadaway from Blue Ridge Lumber. I mean, there, there are a bunch of people who've had a taste of this and who, uh, I think if someone were to say, I'm putting a project together, are you in? Would mm-hmm. say, I am. And I think it's going to be Kevin. Yeah. who says, I'm putting a project together. Because yeah. it can't be one of the tenure-based stakeholders. It's got yeah. to be someone at arm's length from that. It does, yeah. yeah. Oh, and it's a hard one to keep going, too. No, once 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 it starts, it gets its own momentum. I hope so. It does. I it does so. because people are going away feeling empowered. Mm-hmm. And when people feel empowered, they come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I do have to go. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks, Milo. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Please share, review, share it on social media, tell your friends. Um, be excited about this concept and, and try to get it out to as many people as possible because I'm excited about it. I hope you are. And uh, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. Um, feel free to reach out to me at yourforestpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or, or want to follow up with anything. I'd be happy to happy to answer and help in any way I can. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Take it easy. Thank you.